From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, America turns the page on climate change, the case for buying climate tech from people of color, the greening of laboratories, and why supporting democracy is the new measure of corporate leadership. It's Hail to the Chief, this week on 350. It's January 22nd, 2021. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her presidential suite in Midland Park, New Jersey, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Well, I am wearing purple this week in honor of unity. But uh, hi, Joel. How are you? You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm experiencing this sort of awkward, slightly uncomfortable, and maybe even a little bit guilt-inducing feeling. I'm not sure. I, it kind of feels like hope. Not Enjoy, perhaps. <laughs> I know Getting it there. does feel weird, doesn't it? It feels very uh, un- unsettling, but in a good way. Yeah, it's it's definitely. I mean, what a week! First of all, we're uh, you know let's own up to the fact that we are recording this on inauguration day, at the end of the day, Ooh. East Coast time, uh, and so we don't know. Uh, you know, what the full day Thursday of inauguration week looks like. We do know that so far today, uh, President Biden has uh, has uh, basically killed the XL pipeline and rejoined the Paris uh, Climate Initiative. That's mm-hmm. uh, two great things for the world of, of, of sustainability and climate. And I'm sure there's, well, I know there's lots more to come. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, what a week. Yeah, what a week. And um, I just feel like there's this collective um, looking forward, right? I mean, I know that we're, we have so many challenges ahead of us. Um, and there's, you know, things are, are not great, but it just feels like we can actually finally take that step. Um, and I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited for us. I'm excited for us, the collective, too, you know. Well, the the big story that the media did not report about what happened on Wednesday this week. <laughs> you know where I'm going with I this. I know where you're going. <laughs> yep. Is the inauguration of the Greenfin Weekly Newsletter. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. No, we, we launched our... Uh, our seventh, count them, seventh weekly e-newsletter right here at GreenBiz, uh, Greenfin Weekly, looking at ESG and sustainable finance. It's been a pet project of mine. I wrote the first uh, newsletter, the, the one that came out this week. We're going to have a rotating group of um, of editors and, and experts and thought leaders on the topic um, writing, uh, taking the helm of the newsletter each Wednesday. Um, encourage you to sign up. It's uh, it's as all our newsletters are free, and I think it's going to be interesting. Given and and the timing, I have to say, you know, it's it's only partially coincidental that it it launched when it did. I mean, on this particular day, it actually fit into our marketing schedule pretty well. But also the fact that the Biden administration is giving new life to uh, disclosure and a 
accountability and climate risk and uh, sustainable finance in general and infrastructure finance with a green lens and all sorts of things that we're going to be uh, talking about, in, not just in the Greenfin newsletter, but at our Greenfin conference in April. So I'll stop at the plug there, but I think that that, that was a big thing for us and uh, reflecting something big that seems to be happening in mm -hmm. the world at large. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. But let's talk about one other thing that's just coming up on Monday, which is I mean, such a busy time. I don't know how this is all happening at once, but somehow it is that on Monday, the 25th, we are launching our 14th annual State of Green Business Report with a webcast, as we do every year. It'll be myself and Richard Madison, the CEO of S&P Global True Cost, um, looking at uh, uh, 10 trends that uh, forward-looking trends that that uh, we we think are important to be looking at, and a whole slew of metrics, really fascinating stuff, looking at uh, uh, finance and, and 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 performance of companies, uh, not just in the, the S and P 500, but also uh, 1,200 global companies. Um, around the world and how we're doing. So we'll be sending out that report starting on Monday and launching it with a free webcast. So all that's to come, lots going on, and we haven't even gotten to the Week in Review. I think we should stick with democracy for a moment, Joel. Um, I'm going to highlight a piece this week by Terry Yossi. I think we should stick with democracy for the rest of our lives and the rest of <laughs> everyone's lives. I think lives. you're but right. Yeah, um, to, I know what you're saying, but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, but we have a, a, one of our regular columnists, um, Terry Yossi, who uh, it has been in a Washington insider for quite a while, wrote a great piece this week on uh, on what it means for companies to support democracy, and I think we've seen we've seen evidence of this. We've talked a little bit about it um, in weeks, recent weeks past, but um, specifically, he writes about the sort of um, amazing comeuppance that happened with donations. Right, um, there were a lot of companies that were incredibly embarrassed by the revelation that they had made contributions to organizations that tried to block the certification of, of this particular election. Um, and uh, there was quite a ruckus over this. Uh, there was actually, and in this, to, to go back to the power of newsletters for a moment, there was a newsletter that, that un, unveiled a lot of this, revealed a lot of this, and it just started this amazing ripple effect. Um, so you have seen companies like never before say, hey, wait a minute, like, who are we donating to? And like, who makes the decision on that? And so Terry writes a piece about, um, you know, how this needs to be part of the governance, you know, go back to the ESG. Well, this is part of a governance of a, of a good company. And what does your company really stand for? So I think, um, again, one of these awakenings that um, has, you know, I, I would have to say that the one thing that has been great about the past four years is a lot of people have woken up to um, systemic issues in ways of never before. Now, I'm not going to be Pollyannish to, to suggest that this is going to be fixed immediately or even that, that this won't kind of shift back after things die down. But I, I haven't ever experienced this sort of uh, um, re revelation before and the support of this sort of cancel culturing of uh, corporate donations. Have you seen this before? Is this unusual, Joel? Uh, no, I think this is, uh, we've seen a little bit of this before because we talked uh, every four years, there's always, a, or even two years around the national elections 
in terms of what companies are giving to you. And, and, um, but this is uh, taken on a whole new level, but it's not just about donations. And what I really like about what Terry did in this piece is, is talked about initiatives where companies can, can actively participate, if not in fact drive that, uh, really uh, raise the bar in support of democracy. So not just uh, redefining the criteria for advocacy organizations. So they're truly aligned with, with, with the company's values and, and policy objectives, but also looking at uh, how that works with, you know, pro-climate change and sustainability efforts of asset managers and investors and non-governmental organizations and aligning those with pro-democracy advocacy. Uh, and by the way, I don't see this as partisan. In fact, uh, Terry, I believe, worked for uh, the EPA during the uh, George H.W. Bush administration. I do not know his politics. So I don't think this is necessarily a partisan thing. I think this is a democracy thing and understanding, you know, what I think and to your point, Heather, that these these last few years, we've we've, we've come to understand, first of all, that democracy is fragile that we can't take it for granted, and that the world's biggest institutions, which are now companies, uh, need to support it. And they can't take it for granted. And when they do, and when we all do, things happen that can uh, undermine not just uh, all of us individually, but also our institutions, including the private sector. And so uh, this is just a really thoughtful piece with lots of things that we should be looking at and things that companies can be thinking about. So I, this is one that uh, if I was in a big company, I'd be clipping and sending to my government affairs folks and saying, this should be on your radar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, another uh, article that you should clip, that? <laughs> I think Marilyn Waite's piece uh, this week on, yes, yes. yeah, yeah, the case for buying climate tech from BIPOC and women-owned suppliers. She has a fantastic list here of companies that are working on amazing uh, solutions in terms of energy efficiency, solar, carbon, and so forth. And I... I, when I when I got this draft in, when I, when I full disclosure, I had ed, edited this piece. I thought, oh my gosh, what a great list! I have to go call these people because I didn't know. Um, I knew a, a number of these names, um, but they have not been celebrated in the way that they should have been. And so her case here, the, the thesis of her article is, hey, you should know these people. If you're getting this sort of service, why aren't you using this this organization? These organizations are. Uh, ones that you should have in your procurement evaluations. Um, and P.S., you know, like, look at this list. So I just I just love this list. <laughs> Can you tell I love this list? Yeah, I think you do. But but I think it's also important that that the list is one thing, but getting the corporate policies behind this that in, that enable, if not, in fact, require companies to start looking in different directions for their supply chains. And I really want to call out uh, something that uh, don't, probably didn't get the attention it deserves given all of the other news that's been taking place over the past couple of weeks. But uh, last week, um, Apple announced a, a major new uh, set of initiatives as part of its uh, what they call Reggie, the Racial Equity and Justice Initiative, a $100 million initiative to support uh, and drive more uh, investment and procurement in communities of color, as they call it. Um, and they're, part of it is also supporting uh, 
the HBCUs, uh, historically black colleges and universities, and, and Apple Developer Academies to support coding and tech education for students in Detroit and venture capital funding for black and brown entrepreneurs. But this is part of an effort that that, that company has undertaken to direct more of its procurement uh, and investment in communities of color. Um, so I think this is something that we will be seeing more and more of. And I, I, I have a feeling, without really knowing much about it, that, that the Biden administration will be leaning into these kinds of investments as well as we, uh, as they like to say, build back better. Um, but as part of the recovery, that there will be a, a sustained and, and I think significant effort to uh, channel funds into communities of color and entrepreneurs like the ones in Maryland, uh, this great list that, as you said, that Maryland has put into this article. Uh, but also, you know, it's, it's, the list is one thing, but it's the rationale behind it that is really everything. And I think we really want to make sure that, you know, reading this article and not just going to the list is, I think, really going to be an important thing to do. Yeah. And one last point on this is it needs to be simple. It needs to be easier. They, these companies should not have to jump through umpteen hoops to be part of that procurement process. And right now, a lot of them are. Yeah. Well, speaking of jumping through hoops, let's move to a piece that you wrote, Heather. Uh, it's a great title. When was <laughs> the last time you chatted with your CIO, CTO, or CDO? And of course, we're talking about Chief uh, Information Officer, Chief Technology Officer, and is that Chief Developer Officer? What Digital. 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 So why did you, why did this piece come to you? So this piece came to me as I was sitting back and thinking about the, some of the briefings that I did at the Consumer Electronics Show uh, last week. And yeah, you're probably all going, what? Consumer Electronics Show? Sustainability? What? Um, for the past several years, the, the, the organization behind the show has tried to hold up um, sort of the consumer level products that, that, uh, that are being thinking about things like energy and there's there's a lot of specific products that 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 they're trying to tout as being more green and so forth so the, the kind of the usual fare but what what I was focusing on was the the big companies behind the technologies and sensors and artificial intelligence that are really going to make a difference and so you know the the list of people that reached out to me for briefings was John Deere, Caterpillar, Bosch and you know I'm like what you know consumer electronics show but my big takeaway from it, as I was sitting back and thinking about the briefings I got, was number one, we've talked about the fact that artificial intelligence is super important for um, you know things like environmental monitoring and 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 keeping track of energy management and so forth, and that we we've written that for a while. But but the connection and the aha moment for me was thinking about the the strides and the pace and the jumps forward in digital communications that we've made in the past year. I think the figure is McKinsey says we've leapt forward something like three to five years in terms of digitization, right? It, it moving towards digital infrastructure in adopting processes that will make a supply chain more digital as opposed to the, the manual processes that we deal with today. So for me, 2020, I think, was a year in which now the possibilities are are squarely in front of the, the business heads, the CIOs, the chief information officers have made a lot of investments that, and now some of the things that sustainability professionals have been trying to do for some time, like account for their carbon in a much more fluid and real-time way, or you know, 
get that energy management system into their factory. Those things could be more possible because of those investments. So um, I'm babbling on, but I guess the last point I would make before you ask me other questions is that I got it got me to wondering, well, how often do our do our community of, of sustainability professionals spend talking to the, the IT teams at their companies? You know, how often do you walk over there and understand what investments they're making um, that could benefit your team and help make these things more automated? So that's my rationale for this story. Yeah. And I understand you had uh, rumor has it you had a kind of an interesting little experience um, <laughs> uh, out uh, in the field. So in the field, of. yeah, yeah. Actually, that was one of the coolest demos I've ever done. So John Deere, which is uh, talking a lot about uh, precision agriculture, right? So tractors that are endowed with sensors and automated uh, autonomous driving features, and um, and and in wireless technologies that can help plant a field in much more uh, efficient and, and rapid fashion than, than impossible in the past. Well, you know, how, how, would it, how was I going to see a demo of something like that? Well, <laughs> John Deere sent an Oculus a headset, um, a, a pair of Oculus goggles to me and had me hooked up basically. So I was virtually walking around a field, interacting with this tractor. I uh, went underground to see the soil compaction and, and um, some of the the, the, the metrics and the, the people they're using to help me measure soil health. And it was just one of the most clever uh, demos I've probably ever gotten. Of course, I don't think they're going to send uh, this these goggles around to everyone. And yes, I, I did have to send them back. But um, it it did demonstrate the power of technology. Here, here So here we are virtually. How are they going to make this case? And that was a pretty compelling case in my mind. And, um, you know, it just... It just points me back to, hey, are you talking to your chief information officer? And uh, if you're not, you should. Yeah. The seeds of change. They're coming at us. Hi, I'm Elsa Wenzel, senior writer with GreenBiz. R&D labs may be hotbeds of innovation, but their carbon footprint is unnecessarily huge. Laboratories burn through shocking amounts of energy, water, and single-use plastic. Per square foot, they may use more than five times as much energy as office spaces. Freezers, ventilation systems, and centrifuges are just a few energy hogs. My Green Lab sees all this as a massive opportunity to make a global impact by changing how scientists and others work in labs. Its programs reach thousands of people in labs at companies and organizations around the world. It has a new CEO, James Connolly, who joined from the International Living Future Institute last year. The life sciences industry is, is obviously an incredibly important and growing industry, um, over $1.5 trillion industry. Um, and while a lot of the big corporate players as well as universities have kind of higher level sustainability goals and, you know, organizations that we partner with like AstraZeneca or Genentech, which is a division of uh, Roche, you know, have participated in GreenBiz, for example, and published sustainability reports for a long time. But they've had difficulty kind of moving their sustainability efforts at a corporate level into their actual R&D and research labs, which are huge drivers of environmental impact. 
similarly with, with universities. For example, Harvard University, their laboratory spaces are responsible for 44% of their overall carbon impact. It's sort of a surprising fact how, how much energy and water and, and materials that, that laboratory spaces consume and it's been sort of ignored by the green building world a little bit because it's difficult to address. And so the unique aspect of what My Green Lab does is it was created by scientists for scientists to help work on behavior change and transformation of how the labs are actually operated and, and how science and research is actually performed. That allows us to get at um, actual energy reductions of those R&D spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have studies that sh- have shown 30% energy reduction, um, 50% reduction in water in laboratory spaces, as well as a 10% reduction in uh, waste produced through pursuing of our program, which really is about educating scientists and educating lab managers and facility managers about how to better manage their space. A few years ago, AstraZeneca became the first big pharma name to pursue green lab certification at multiple lab sites. Now it's committing to expand that to 50 more of its labs in the year ahead and eventually to all of its labs. Pernilla Sorm is the global safety, health, and environment risk management lead at AstraZeneca. Here, she explains how working with My Green Lab is helping the company's climate targets of zero carbon emissions and operations by 2025 and becoming carbon negative by 2030. There's so, so much to gain from working more sustainable in the lab and, and, and the waste, uh, it's like incredible, the waste that a lab uh, creates. So th- there's loads of things that can be done in the lab space and um my Green Lab is a brilliant project because it reaches out to the scientists and and try to change the behavior and the mindset of the scientists um, in the lab rather than running something centrally that doesn't reach out to the actual people working in the lab. So it's brilliant in that way that it's very sort of a grassroots movement sort of reaching bottom up rather than top down, <laughs> if you like. Something we also noticed, which was a big surprise to us, is that a lot of the um, uh, scientists uh, wasn't aware of a, a lot of the work that AstraZeneca was already doing in the lab. So uh, if you're working in the lab, it's good to have like uh, some general understanding of sustainability and, and the sustainability work that facility management and procurement and so on are already doing. So a lot of sort of the, the quick wins that we was was to inform the scientists that, for instance, uh, the freezer filters are, are changed on uh, a yearly basis by the FM team and the lights in the labs are LEDs and so on. There's lots of stuff that happened that they weren't aware, which is good to have a general awareness on sustainability, but also to, to, be, to be a great place to work, to know that AstraZeneca is doing lots of sustainability work. So that was, was a really good... Um, uh, eye-opener for us as well as a company.
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find out more about the organization's stories and events we've mentioned. While you're there, check out our free newsletters, including Greenfin Weekly, which just launched it, as we said. You go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. We love to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and tips to us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.